Hey, welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. We are in Portugal, my yeah, friend. In a room that's remarkably like a bathtub. Like, yeah, uh, we're sorry for the, the echo. We're, I mean, it's fun to be together. I like that a lot. Very but much. It's also, you know, audio is not the same. We, we take all that for granted. But yeah. I, I'm engineering today, so it's my fault if we peek out. But other uh, than that, uh, I'm sure it'll sound great. It'll be yeah. fine. And Brandon will make us all sound smart. Yeah, of course. And, you know, so Portugal is kind of near Spain. Did you know that? I've heard rumor. Yeah, you've heard rumor. And we have a friend in Spain. Oh. We have two friends, Mark Miller and Karen Mangicotti. And so Karen sees that I'm in Portugal and she says, and you didn't stop by and say hi. <laughs> and I said back, I, I was going to ask you the same question. So. <laughs> She said, well, I would get on a plane. The pl- flights from Spain are only 50 bucks. Right. Right. However, she has COVID. And so does, and so does Mark. Yeah. yeah. They're all testing positive right now. Yeah. So I hope they get well fast. But if you haven't been to Porto, Portugal, it is beautiful. Yeah. Lovely place. Especially this time of year. And I, I can't imagine what it'd be like in the fall. Yeah. Fall would be beautiful, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I think it gets too hot in the summer, but that's fine. Yeah. For us anyway. I think some people like I'm that already machine. sunburned <laughs> just from sitting at the rooftop bar all day. Yeah. You know? But yeah, it oh, is did a I lovely say that place. Out loud? Yeah. It's a lovely place. Um, so we've got a really good show for you. We're going to talk about security in uh, open source and my better know framework is kind of security ish. Okay. So roll the crazy music. All right, buddy, what do you got? So as you know, I do this other show called Security This Week. I've heard. It's a fairly new show. We only have 40 episodes. A mere. 1,800. Right. Um, but I, I'm the dumb guy in the room, mm-hmm. for those who don't know. It's called Security This Week. You can get it wherever you get your podcasts or securitythisweek.com. And uh, Patrick Hines and Dwayne LaFlotte are the the brainiacs behind it. And basically, I just ask them questions, and we talk about current events. So we learn about security through the lens of the hacks that have happened that week. Cool. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. And so we learn a lot of things, and we have a good laugh. But... I wrote this blog post, which I've been sending to all my family and friends and, and everything else. The link is stw.appvnext.com, and it's tips to avoid getting scammed online. Cool. And it's just simple stuff that we all know. We all know this well, you'd stuff hope we'd because, know, because we've been around for a while and we you know, think about these things. Mm-hmm. But mere mortals who use computers don't just don't get the fact that, you know, None of your Facebook friends are going to send you a message saying, Hey, I'm trapped in somewhere and please send me $10,000. Right. That just, that just doesn't happen. That's not how it does. It just doesn't happen. So there's a whole bunch of things. And the, the, the most common way people get scammed is by social engineering. You know, it's not about, um, it's, well, sometimes it's about flaws, right? But most flaws and zero day exploits come out. But, um, you know, sometimes you'll get a text from, a company that you deal with, like your credit card company or your bank, and you get a text and it'll say something like, you know, hey, you have this opportunity or there's a problem, click here to fix it. Don't do that. Yeah, don't ever do that. Don't ever do Actually, that. I've all gotten into the habit of, I never click on anything anymore. Yeah, I never click like on anything. Like if I anything. see an ad for something that seems interesting, I would rather enter that URL yeah. manually. That's it. You go to the browser, you go through the regular logon process yeah. if you have a logon. And, you know, those are basic things. Don't yeah. ever click on a PowerPoint presentation. Somebody sends you, hey, check this out. 
right? I mean, there's so many ways that people just get. Yeah, that's the, that's the current hot exploit on Discord right now is I send you a graphic that won't load for you because it's yeah. not actually a graphic. You say, Hey, can you see this picture? Then you click on it. It actually redirects you to a scam. Yeah. It's just bad. Yep. So anyway, that's something that you can share with the mere mortals in your life that, uh, need to know. And you might learn something too. Awesome. So that's what I have. Cool. Who's talking to us, Richard? He grabbed a comment off of show 1721, the one we did with uh, Maya Karofsky when we were talking about the state of security at the Octaverse. And that was, uh, you know, uh, GitHub is always does their regular state of security. And it was a great conversation about the those kinds of problems, updating software, yeah. you know, dealing with those issues. And this comment comes from Rob Gardner, uh, admittedly about a year ago, where he said, uh, this was a great episode. As a programmer instructor, I teach my students that as developers, we need to take ownership of security for areas that a network security person doesn't necessarily have control over. Hmm. Typically things like script injection. <laughs> I'd always felt like I didn't really have a systematic methodology for doing security to point to my, stu- my students to, though. During this episode, it occurred to me that there are a lot of similarities between the early days of developing test-driven design and security. In those early days, test proponents had to advocate for the idea of that testing actually starts before development, right? The sort of test first right. mentality. I think we are due to a similar thought process for security, maybe a security driven design where you take the requirements of the system and develop your security test requirements before you start. Now that's crazy talk. Yeah. And then who you know, would do that? The idea that you would write automated security tests right up front so that you have them every step of the way. Yeah. Uh, hey, Rob, appreciate the thinking and uh, copy of music to code by it's on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of music to code by, write a comment on the website at donnetrocks.com or on the Facebooks. So we publish every show there. And if you comment on the show and I read it, then we'll send you a copy of music to go by. Yeah. And definitely follow us on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet and make sure you're very clear that it doesn't have a PowerPoint attachment. <laughs> Otherwise, we're not going to read it. We have more more PowerPoints attached to Twitter than ever. I don't even think you can do that. Can you? <sighs> I really can hope you, you can't. But files if- by. But Elon's buying it. Who knows what he'll add? Oh, yeah. The free speech. I want to be able to infect all my friends. That's that's theirs freedom for you. (laughs) All right. So let us introduce our guest, Jillian Ratliff. Uh, Jillian provides application security training for software engineers so they have the skills to write secure code in any language. With over 10 years of AppSec experience, she has worn many hats penetration tester, consultant, code reviewer, and threat modeler. However, her favorite hat to wear has always been that of a teacher, and that's why she founded Gold Hat Security in 2019. Welcome to the show, Jillian. Thanks for having me. Yeah, excited to have you here, and really a great topic, too, because I think a lot of folks are just are diving into open source these days without thinking an awful lot about the, the consequences. I think that's the default. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I, I'm right. doing this now, mm-hmm. but I don't think about, I mean, where code comes from and where, you know, how it ch- might change on you. I think we've had a couple of cool incidences in the recent well, past. cool is, is a relative term, I suppose, but <laughs> cool for me is someone who gets to talk about somebody else's disaster, but yes. that's about the only kind yeah, of Yeah. Unless you're dealing with it. Yeah. And uh, I think everybody had to deal with log4j in some format. Yeah. Whether you used it or not, you're getting calls about you had it. To, mm. You had to answer the question. Mm-hmm. It was a conversation I did over on the IT side where this idea that as IT security folks, we need to maintain a manifest of what our internal applications depend on so that we can answer that question. Mm-hmm. Just some very simple checks, you know, before you make that repo public, you got to think about a few things like, you know, is your config file in there? Does it have secrets in there? Those are problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
I, and what about private repos? What if I have something in a private repo on GitHub and it's just for me and I've got, uh, you know, passwords in there, for example, in my config or secrets? Does, do those things get traversed by GitHub and then are they visible at all to anybody else? Um, well, I would recommend against putting your passwords in your code to begin with. Well, in a config for, file for that, that goes along with your. Um, yeah, well, I mean, the config file in GitHub is, is somewhat risky. Um, yeah. I've, I've had people just accidentally make things public. Right. Mm-hmm. Easy like, to do. That's, that's a pretty easy thing to do. Yeah. Um, so I typically recommend that people store their secrets somewhere else. Yeah. Like, you know, keep the config file in a password manager and, or not a password manager, but in Azure, um, for example, mm-hmm. key, key vault. vault. Yeah. Or just in Azure configuration. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's what we do. Yeah. Well, in, um, encrypted environment variables are, the the best spot for that. Yeah. Um but yeah, right. there's there's a million things that can go wrong when you write code. <laughs> and, <laughs> um and th- that's one of the things I find so fascinating about it and there's always something new to learn. Yeah. Um but I think one of the the biggest challenges that we have in application security is just there's a gap in knowledge. Mm-hmm. I was talking to somebody just yesterday who wants to get into security and he's getting a bachelor's degree in, um, in computer science and has taken maybe two security courses and it's just not part of the curriculum even now. Yeah. Developers consider security a pain in the neck. They don't like it. I that. know. And I try really hard not to be a pain in the neck. No, no, no. It's not <laughs> you. That's the pain in the neck. It's security. I, it is it, though. We hate it is. It. Developers yeah. generally hate security but and we, it's something they have to do at the end before they publish something. It's a lot easier if you do it at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that was Rob's point, the, yeah. the commenter as well. I mean, it's the same as true of building your, I mean, we now embrace the fact of building a CI CD pipeline. Like that's one of the first things you get going before you sort of get to a hello world state and then you figure out your pipeline to make sure you can do all your deployment. Like why wouldn't you institute all your authentication requirements right then and there Mm -hmm. so that you're always living in them? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we're all in vile agreement. Thanks for coming on the show. (laughs) (laughs) Can't debate that one. No, no. But I mean, it doesn't necessarily make it easy and it, and you're certainly going to have emergent security requirements over time. Mm-hmm. I mean, the pipeline's probably the pipeline the whole time. Um, there's some changes that happen as you go further down the path and you've added new features and so forth. But I guess and the same would be true for security, that there's certain things you know you're going to do right off the bat are always going to be there, mm-hmm. and then things you're going to have to add later. Yeah, well, and it definitely helps when you start at the beginning. So when you're designing something from an architecture perspective, mm-hmm. that's the spot where I... I would most want to be talked to yeah. rather than, oh, we're deploying this to production next week. Can you give it a security review? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so if you talk to me at the beginning, then, then any big architectural design flaws are going to be obvious and we can fix them before you put the work into it. I mean, if someone actually presents that idea to you of we're ready to deploy next, this week, can you give us a, a, a security review? Mm-hmm. How, I mean, how do they not fail? Um, I mean, it seems impossible. They're going to fail. A, well, a lot of uh, coffee on my part. And <laughs> well, that's you just getting to figure out how they're failing. Uh, but, mm-hmm. but I mean, the reality is if you've built that much software that you're ready to put it out into the world and you have not yet done a security review, you're almost guaranteed to be violating something significant. It's true. And, and usually the way that that works in reality is... You know, I'll, I'll take a look at it and give it a review and say, okay, well, here are all the things that are wrong. 
And they say, okay, well, we'll fix it after we put it in production. What? Yeah. And like, I built the house, but I forgot the lock on the door. But don't <laughs> worry, you can move in. Yes, pretty much. And then sometimes they'll get to it later. Um, but usually, I for the most part, I think that engineers are focused on getting code that works. Yeah. yeah. And security is focused on getting code to a point where it doesn't break. And there's just a world of difference. And in that difference is application security. <laughs> So. Yeah, or I mean, also, th- I think in terms of safe, mm-hmm. right, that doesn't risk the information it's gathering, that doesn't right. create liabilities el- elsewhere in the organization. Like, there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of aspects to security in that respect. There is, but I, I kind of still sum it up as code that doesn't break, because right. like a SQL injection is, that's code that breaks. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> so. it, it does something that wasn't, it wasn't supposed to mm-hmm. do. Yeah. Right. I think if we all start from the adage that input is evil, <laughs> and users are evil mm-hmm. and you should expect you shouldn't expect them to play nice and trust no one trust yeah. nobody <laughs> zero trust i don't even trust myself most of the time yeah i certainly got to the point where it's like no i don't want rice to that because then it could be my fault <laughs> so yeah let's let it go it's all right don't give me access please uh, all right although zero trust is a buzzword now right like, it is there's I, I there's people, always a new buzzword yeah um <laughs> it's and it anything that gets security visible to the decision makers in an organization, like buzzwords, I'm mm. fine with. Yeah. Um, but when you ask me about the technical details about whatever the buzzword of the week is, I, I'm going to say, well, well, what does that mean to you? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that, I, so. That's a very common statement. So when you say zero trust, <laughs> what do you mean? Because it, it, mm. because it's a buzzword, it, everybody kind of has a different idea of what You're that right. looks like. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah. How about almost zero trust? <laughs> point one trust. I, I think if you want anything to work, you need to be able to trust at some point. Yeah. And when do I trust? Yeah. I mean, I don't want to give up on the buzzword yet because I'm trying to think about how it applies to application developers. I know for mm-hmm. me, when I'm doing work in the IT space, zero trust is authenticating every entity mm-hmm. each step of the way. I just don't know how that would necessarily impact an application development. Well, I can think of a few examples of what that would look like in the application layer. and Because mm-hmm. you don't want to authenticate a human user for every time they send a get or a post request. No. That's silly. Um, but you do want to double check that they're still authorized to do that and they're still logged in. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the same thing. Were you into application yeah. security when the single sign-on craze hit? Um, and what did you think of it? Probably. Because uh, that probably about 10 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So I've been, I've got 13 years now. Um, right. So my career is a teenager and <laughs> I'm starting to get the kind of surly teenager attitude about it. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. I definitely um, have a middle-aged career. But I mean, you know, back, but we all just went along with it and said, yeah, of course, that's a great idea because it's mm-hmm. convenient. As my friend Patrick Hines says, convenience is the enemy of security. Um, sometimes. I, in some cases, there, there's a balance, I think, between usability and security. Yeah. And if you make something so secure it's not usable, people are going to find a way around it. Right. So sometimes convenience and security can work together. But I do remember um, the early days of, of SAML and just... Yeah. <laughs> it was not convenient for the developers. No. <laughs> no. It was, it was hard enough that they just didn't do it. Yeah. 
But I also think that, you know, single sign-on evolved into login with your Google credentials. And, and I think right. folks have pretty, I think the average person now has backed away from that. Or maybe I'm wrong. I certainly have. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Well, it, it depends on the user. I mean, I have a password manager, mm-hmm. yeah. which is a, what I recommend for everybody. I mean, so this I. is the one like, of the few rooms in the world where everyone's using a password manager. <laughs> yep. Probably. Yes, yeah. all three of us. All yeah. three of us <laughs> all use password managers. Um, but at the same time, there are a few things that I'll use my Google credentials to sign into because it's not really that important. Sure. And my, I mean, my Google password is very good. And I have a bunch of them, right? Because yep. but see, you're not you can't actually, live in one Google yeah. account. You're not actually giving your password to those third right. parties. So it's just an authentication, talky-talky yeah, thing. If I understand <laughs> the risk, it's if that Google account got hijacked for any reason, anything that depended on it could also be hijacked. That's true. That's yeah. a scary thought, That's, isn't it? I mean, I have so much stuff in Google and Drive and whatever. Yeah, that would be a pretty bad point of failure really, for me as yeah, well. Yeah. But I've got two-factor turned on. and Yeah, so do I. Yeah. And a password from LastPass that's a mile long. Mm-hmm. And, a, well, and I went Fido key as well, which I, I don't know how you feel about the Fido key. Final key. Fido key. Fido key. I'm yeah. not familiar just with a, either. It's a USB key based. The little <laughs> USB key that you, ah, I have to plug gotcha. in as well to get access to my password manager. Uh, mm-hmm. or, and you can actually set them up for Google accounts as well. Okay. And my GitHub. Well, I have, um, I should probably maybe not talk too much about my security measures, yeah, but right. I, <laughs> I use Google Authenticator for all the two factor yeah. things. Yeah. I, I definitely have tried hard now to move away from SMS as a yeah. second authentication. But even still, it's better than no two factor authentication. True. Yeah. Cause mm-hmm. there's a layer of difficulty in, in spoofing someone's SIM card. Yeah. So. You're you're a different layer. You're you're a different layer of bad guy if mm-hmm. he's they're able to spoof your SIM card. Mm-hmm. How how often do you see people in companies, um, small businesses, large businesses, sharing accounts, sharing logins? Um, me personally, I don't because they know better. Yeah. <laughs> they know not to they tell me. They wouldn't tell you that. They would not tell me that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I I do hear of it. I'm pretty sure yeah. that like for things like privileged admin accounts Mm -hmm. it's just i i don't know why it's easier to just share one password but there's like there's no accountability there right and if you put it on a sticky note um (laughs) that's that's worst case scenario for me (laughs) sticky note on the monitor yeah no and then you you get the guy who ends up on tv for some piece and his passwords are on the monitor and now they're on tv yeah (laughs) i've seen that yeah yeah (laughs) Uh, I mean, I think, I think for the most part, folks that are listening are at least aware. And if you're not going to use a password manager, how are you going to convince anyone else? I'm actually having success within the family now. My wife got my wife on board, but it's, it is the shared accounts like the power bill mm. and the mm-hmm. cell bill and things like that, where it's like they, it, it, we can have a good password because it lives in LastPass families and, and so it can be shared. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, I didn't know they had a. Families. Yeah, they got a families yeah, mode that's now. Cool. They got an enterprise mode as well. Hmm. That same sort of thing. It's like I do have need multiple people to have access to an account. Right. Well, in one form or another. So I mean, we don't want to share passwords, but sometimes you do need to share an account. For better or worse. Yep. And, and I mean you don't need to know much as a developer these days, it seems, to get all those features. You just use Azure A D in your in your app as the authentication strategy. And that means 2FA comes along with it. 
Well, there are a lot of problems that have been solved in application security mm-hmm. and things like authentication and cryptography are things that I would say, well, don't start from scratch. Like mm-hmm. somebody solved that problem. Um, but there's also a lot of things that have not been solved. Mm-hmm. And um, especially depending on what language and framework you're using, it's sometimes a little easier to write code securely and sometimes it's not. Um but but things like open source, which is what I was talking about yesterday mm-hmm. in my in my talk, um, it's it's such a difficult problem because you don't know what you can trust. What are the and, security issues around open source then? Um, anything that can go wrong with code will go wrong. Right. Yeah, right. So you know you've got for, log four J was remote code execution. Right. Which is as and, bad as it gets. And, you yeah. Know? Um, and, and for a logging tool. Yeah. So I had a yeah. I I used this That's everywhere third party logging tool mm-hmm. that was open source. It cost me nothing, and now I have an exploit in my code. Mm-hmm. And the the thing is that's really very scary about it is that most open source packages use other open source packages, mm-hmm. which use other packages, and so on and so forth. So mm-hmm. you get nested dependencies mm-hmm. to the point where you can you can be using two or three libraries in your code, but it's really using like 4,000 libraries when you really dig into it. Right. And do you trust all of those people to have written good code? You, you shouldn't. Right. <laughs> so it gets scary and it's a complicated problem that nobody's really solved fully. Well, they're, they're trying. Yeah. Um, with GitHub, I know there's uh, processes that go look through the code and try to find vulnerabilities. Mm-hmm. Yep. GitHub has some tools. Um, and there, there are some paid tools as well that do a pretty good job mm. of creating that inventory. But it's still not going to catch everything. Yeah, it's still not going to catch everything. And the thing is that they're working off of known vulnerabilities. Yeah. So the unknown vulnerabilities, like what happened with Log4j, is that's yeah. what's really scary. I mean, that was an accidentally introduced problem, right? It was a it most security vulnerabilities are. Yeah. yeah. Mm. It's not like somebody did that on purpose. Yeah, they we're not dealing with state actors here. You yeah. know, although that's a that's a threat. Too. That that's a, a valid threat. But are there generic telltale signatures of vulnerabilities, like calling out to uh, services on an IP address that can be validated? No, nope. you know, that's. I mean, it's a thing to look for, but you know, at the application layer. You can have layers of defense. So I know that some people used web application firewalls to block mm-hmm. malicious type scripts, um, mm. which it, it's a good layer of defense. It's just not a complete fix yeah. either. So um, this is one example and a, a very ho- high profile example because everybody was using it. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's the what worries me is I've been doing this long enough that when that when that news came out mm. I wasn't really surprised. Yeah. Um, no, you're you know, surprised it took that long. Yeah. Well, I was surprised that it it took that long for something to affect everybody. Yeah. Like that. Um. And quite possibly there's other really popular libraries that have similar flaws that we just haven't found mm-hmm. yet. Mm-hmm. So. Um. It's it's not a fully solved problem, but I no. do think that one of the most important things that you could do as as an engineer is make sure that you can update things quickly if you need to. My concern here is the if it's if you're depending on an open source project and you're doing a build and part of your pipeline is you go grab the latest versions automatically. Mm-hmm. 
that you could be easily introducing a vulnerability here that because you, you may have you be doing additional validation and so forth but when like a lot of those more advanced validation tools for checking for security risks they take time like i wonder if i have to start maintaining my own repository of tested builds of everything well i wouldn't do that Honestly, because most updates are probably going to be fixing things. Yeah. It should, in theory, be getting better. Yeah. Um, but it's also the vector by which vulnerabilities are introduced. Well, using other people's code is. Yes. But also using your code might be. Mm-hmm. So it depends on what it is. Like for things like security problems, like encryption, you know, writing your own code is probably going to introduce a lot more problems than just using somebody else's code who who knows but understands cryptography. I get your point, Richard, but which is yeah, probably before you sign off on this, you you want to go look at the update and see what they fixed uh, just to make sure that it's I mean, it, nobody's going to say in their up, you know, in their check-in comments introduce the vulnerability. Right. But you can at least see that they're fixing things or you well, know, if they introduce mm-hmm. a new feature, now is that something that you can decide to go test or not? Well, I recommend vetting any package yeah. that you choose to use. Yeah, so I just don't know that people are doing that. I think we've. I think nobody is, and that's why I'm here hard. talking to yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> I think we've worked hard to <laughs> make that. sure to keep our bits up to date on the presumption that everything gets better. Yeah. Well, not everything gets better. Sometimes it does get worse. Mm-hmm. But if there are known vulnerabilities and they get patched, then at least somebody's working on it. But yeah. sometimes, like. You, you have abandoned libraries that nobody's updated in years. Yeah. Like, I wouldn't use those because yep. I would assume that that's not going to get better. Yep. Yeah, but if it's good at the time, like, there is a concept of software being done, too. Mm-hmm. Although, I guess there's vulnerabilities that are going to come along later that we have, weren't, weren't available or acknowledged before. Yeah, well, it's like using... Um, any software or operating system that's reached end of life, there's mm-hmm. going to be security vulnerabilities that just don't get patched. Right. right. And that's a risk you take by using it. Yeah. Yep. And it's certainly something we consider is to evaluate, is this open source project alive mm-hmm. before we, we want to incorporate it? But yep. then it's, I suspect once we make the commit, we never look again. Probably. Yeah. And that's, that's where, you know, it's, it's a complicated problem that mm-hmm. hasn't fully been solved, but that's one of right. the things that I would recommend just, keeping an inventory and yeah, maintaining that at, manifest yeah. of what is it that we depend on and when was it last reviewed for health mm-hmm. also you know the fact that something was was uh, was discontinued was abandoned a project if that project is the only thing you can find on the internet that does what that thing did mm-hmm. maybe it wasn't a good idea <laughs> in other words um there may have been a reason for abandoning it like uh, uh this probably just isn't a good idea to go down this path. And I've had to do that. It's a kind of a unique situation, but I was trying to serialize link queries. And serializing a link query is very hard because it depends on code. Yeah, and I'm, I'm just wondering why you'd want to. Oh, but, well, yeah. okay. So the, <laughs> the idea was so that, you know, you could do link queries on a client against a repository on a server and just pass the, the, the link f- queries as, you know, the filters and all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And there was something that did it. And there was a couple other projects that out there that tried to do it. None of them really worked. And there's good reason for it. And mm-hmm. the reason is that, you know, that's, it's not as simple as, as that. You need, there, there's code that has to execute along with it. 
So uh, I just ended up abandoning the whole idea of doing that mm-hmm. and uh, finding another solution. So but it turned out that the library that I was using that seemed to work was abandoned, you know, several years ago. And that's probably why. Hmm. And folks, I'm going to interrupt for one moment for this okay. very important message. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Spot by NetApp. Spot provides a comprehensive suite of cloud ops tools that makes it easy to deliver continuously optimized and reliable infrastructure at the lowest possible cost, while removing a lot of the manual and time-consuming tasks out of managing cloud infrastructure at scale. Imagine automating your infrastructure to proactively meet the needs of your applications as opposed to reacting to the constantly changing needs of your applications and developers. Imagine leveraging the latest in machine learning and automation to scale your infrastructure using the most efficient mix of instances and pricing models, eliminating the risks of over-provisioning and expensive lock-in. Imagine running reliable applications, cutting cloud costs significantly, and making life easier for DevOps teams so they can focus on faster deployments, reliability, and a seamless user experience. From cost management to infrastructure automation, and CD to running serverless Spark on Kubernetes, Spot ensures you maximize your cloud investment. The end result is simply more cloud at less cost. Discover how the most innovative companies from cloud-native growth machines to forward-thinking enterprises are automating, simplifying, and optimizing their cloud infrastructure with Spot by NetApp. Check them out at spot.io rocks. That's spot.io rocks where you can find more information, request a demo, or give it a try by starting a free trial. And we're back. It's .NET Rocks. I'm Richard Campbell. That's Carl Franklin. Hey, hey, hey. And we're talking to Jillian Ratliff about open source security. Yes. And this, uh, I mean, this broader issue of just knowing, you, I've also been aware that certain organizations are very keen on making sure that when they use an open source library, that that code is not stolen in any way. Like it, it has the license it's supposed to have that someone mm-hmm. hasn't introduced anything to it. I know there's testing tools for that to say. Yeah. yeah. And a lot of the, the tools that test for security will let you know if you have potential license issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of those things that it's going to be a little different for every organization, which licenses you can use and which ones you can't. Mm. And um, I just ask the the legal minds that are smarter than me um, about those those sorts of things. But um, there's there's certain types of licenses where you need to give the original author credit. Yep. And there's types of licenses where you can't put it in a commercial product. Mm-hmm. And if you do, you can get into a lot of trouble. So that's... A, but it's still that still feels like something you evaluate at the beginning. Before It's like, okay, here's what theory. the project is assi- <laughs> license is assigned to. Yeah. The question then is if an update introduces code that isn't compliant with the license, like they've gone and brought in something. Oh, so like one it. of the dependencies of the Perhaps dependencies. Dependency. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, that, it, that's a risk. Yeah. Know? I mean, we, ha- we haven't seen that blow up in a meaningful way where a, a popular library gets an update or an addition that creates an inappropriate dependency and it cascades. Like, mm-hmm. We haven't had the log for J of that yet. We've had the log for log for J is our example of a vulnerability being introduced by an update that, mm-hmm. that went far and wide. But I think we, I, on the most part, I don't, I think that folks aren't comfortable 
prosecuting open source licenses. I haven't seen a lot of it, and that yeah. doesn't mean it doesn't happen. Yeah. It's just it may not be one of those things that looks good in the news. You know, I like maybe mm. it happens, but well, I haven't also, really seen like, a lot I'm, of it. I'm looking at the stats as like the majority of licenses these days, not that it's actually a majority, but, you know, the most popular license is an MIT license that has minimal requirements anyway. Mm-hmm. Like in the end, it's just like, eh, we had to use a license. Here's the one that, that upsets people the least. Yeah. Mm. But I think for the average engineer i would say at least know what licenses you're allowed to use yeah, at your yeah. organization and, and be and aware there should of be that. a policy of yeah there should be a policy and right. if there's not then you you should ask people in charge that yeah <laughs> what, to, to what kind that. of licenses can we use well and just recognizing that if you're using open source code that has gpl licenses on it depending on which one it actually affects how you should be coding with it. Yeah. Don't you have to contribute back to the project? Or, anything or ma- you- you, anything you make with it, depending on the license, you might have to release your own code as open source as yeah. well. Yeah. Right? Like, it's mm-hmm. those kinds of things, which is a little off the beaten path as far as the security conversation goes. But it is, you know, sort of a recognition that you don't just pick an open source project because you right. like it. Yeah. That they, yeah. You do have to work through all of these things. I look for MIT. Yeah. And, and apparently most people do. Yeah. Like that's, that's sort of the easy out is go, if it's MIT, you don't have to worry. Yeah. Yeah. Don't have to worry. Don't worry. Be happy. Yeah. I'm just, the enterprise architect in me is still thinking hard about this. I want to do my own testing to be confident that software is safe, but good, you know, deep testing of software takes time. It does. And so in this urge to have constant rapid deployments, um, and then obviously there's value to that. We're taking a substantial security risk. Like how often mm-hmm. are we going to do that kind of end-to-end security testing to be aware of potential vulnerabilities? Mm. Well, there's different layers too. So the, the sorts of tools that you can integrate into your pipeline. Um, so SAST tools, which is static application security testing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, the tool type that takes care of open source is called source code analysis, so mm-hmm. SCA. Those two things you can integrate into the pipeline nice. and can automatically become a gate. So if you have some sort of like known vulnerability, and you can even set it up so that like, anything high or critical stops it, but a medium you can pass through and fix it later. Mm. Um, those sorts of things you can do automatically for every release, and it does slow down the pipeline a little bit, but hopefully not so much where it's an impediment. You could throw more compute at that problem, right? It's probably mm-hmm. in the cloud and, and it could be solved with more compute. For sure. Yeah. But more manual testing, like a penetration test, mm-hmm. I would say ideally you do quarterly, yeah. but I think most people do it annually, annually. because of mm-hmm. compliance reasons. Yeah. And if it weren't for compliance reasons, they probably wouldn't, wouldn't do it do at it all. Though. In reality, it's just, it's expensive and it's time consuming. But if you have a really good pen tester, they can find all sorts of stuff that your tools are missing. Yeah. So, yeah. In some ways, I want, it's like Log4J was a good scenario because everybody was hit by it. At least you're in the mass. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, you obviously raise the viewpoint on a bunch of that stuff. But the, the general mindset of what you don't want is an exploit that's kind of unique to you that gives you, that makes you stand out as vulnerable. When everybody was hit for Log4J, it was more of a question of like, everybody's hit by this. You know, any chance you're just not going to be the one they get around to? Yeah. Um. I was more concerned with, again, I'm, I'm throwing the IT hat on, like the <laughs> Hafnium exploit for exchange servers, which was just, this was a state actor exploit that just took advantage of unpatched exchange uh, servers. Oh, yeah. 
And the, the power of that was that it left your machines vulnerable. And so the original hackers didn't have a lot in the way payload. They were really out to steal email because they were spies. But they left the servers in a state where now a second order set of hackers could come in and actually use mm-hmm. your machines for distributing porn and da-da-da-da-da-da, right? Oops. Yeah, that was an interesting <laughs> one, right? Just a, a, yeah. you know, a, even though it was on, and you know, the crazy part was part of the resolution of that was the FBI using the exploit to patch the servers. That does not surprise yeah. me. Yeah. But that's, I remember that one. Yeah. I, I must admit I wasn't really involved with no, that. No, it's, it's not really a dev thing. Twitter. Pure <laughs> IT thing. But I ended up in these conversations with that there were servers that were not American servers, not on American soil, patched by American legal forces. It it surprises me actually that they chose to patch it. But because yeah. I would think that would be useful for other three-letter agencies. Well, I think <laughs> I'm sure they made some evaluations ahead of time, but otherwise mm-hmm. it's just botnet exposure. Yeah. Like you're going to make the internet a worse place leaving these machines exposed. And so yeah. let's just, we can patch them through the vulnerability. Let's patch them. I mean, it, 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 it's fortunate that it was for the greater good in theory. In theory. But I think really we may the, not the hear about of legality of it. We may not hear about the ones they didn't patch. There may be a few that they chose not yeah, to. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Yeah. Not, not that I would know anything about that. I'm just guessing. <laughs> yeah. I'm just Did I talk about on Dotnet Rocks, Richard, the, the Radiolab podcast called Null? I don't recall. Okay, so Radiolab's a great podcast. you got to mm-hmm. check it out. But they did a story of this hacker. Well, it was it, the, the name of the show is Null, right? So what is that? And then this hacker wanted to get a vanity plate. So he was fooling around with different, you know, names or whatever for his plate, and he came up with null. So he entered in N-U-L-L as his vanity plate. Ha ha, that's very funny. And then he started getting parking tickets, thousands (laughs) of parking tickets, you know, to the tune of $10,000, like $20,000. And it turns out there was a bug in the code where a programmer, instead of comparing a plate name to null the type, mm-hmm. compared it to null in single quotes. Yeah, it's a word. As a word. <laughs> it's strange. a JavaScript programmer yeah. gone amok. And of course, <laughs> it wasn't working until there was actually a plate <laughs> null. Yeah. And, and they couldn't fix it. And he literally, yeah. The easier, easier to change his plate. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And so <laughs> they couldn't uh, fix that. They couldn't fix it because it, it was everywhere in the code base. It oh, would have no. taken weeks, you know. And then the second story was about um, a couple or a guy whose last name was Null. And it, as soon as the the PC, you know, revolution took off, his life became a living hell. That's too bad. Yeah. yeah, I'd change my name. I'm That's <laughs> what they told that one company told him it would be easier for you to change your last name. Well, easier hmm. for them, right? <laughs> easier for him. And I mean, those I, are the sorts of things that keep me up at night, but yeah. also keep me in a job. I well, suppose. Yeah. I mean, no, <laughs> no lack of work at all, <laughs> as long as there's stupidity. There's well, it's job not security. Even, I wouldn't say stupidity. I think it's just a knowledge gap which is different i know very very brilliant people that's true you're right who just don't know about security because you don't know what you don't know Mm -hmm. yeah so use if you're maintaining open source library you use depend about it to remind you of things you should be fixing if you're consuming open source libraries you should be doing your own testing as part of your pipeline Mm -hmm. for security as well and then pen testing is often well 
the first pen test experience you ever have is quite traumatic. I can, I can imagine that. Yeah. Yeah. Once you go through the huge list, you're going to get the first time. The next time will be better. As long as you're fixing things. Yeah. yeah. As long as you actually <laughs> address the, the issues. That's the other thing about doing things for compliance instead of security. I've mm-hmm. seen a lot of pen tests that, well, we got the report. And it just sits there. Yeah, now we're compliant because yeah. mm-hmm. we were required to do that. You have to actually fix the things. Now you're just talking crazy talk, Shelly. <laughs> Goodness knows. <laughs> but it is a genuinely a debate of what are how are we going to prioritize this? What features are we going to postpone mm-hmm. because our resources are focused on mm-hmm. knocking some, down some of these issues? Yeah. And, and, they, and you get some pretty growly product owners at that point. Tell me about it. Mm-hmm. That's That's been my job. Yeah. <laughs> You are not going to make the deadline on those features because you didn't, because we have issues with the past features you've made created Mm -hmm. problems. And I think it's best within an organization to just kind of talk to the product owners and Mm. and convince them that just save 10% out of every sprint for security things. Yeah, and I, then that I don't know if that's it, enough, but I appreciate well, the sentiment. But if or it's twenty, every, or yeah. you know, even thirty. If but it's every sprint, though. These, that that should be enough. Well, most of those fixes aren't going to be that quick, too, right? It's like, true, but it's an expectation setting thing. So yeah. if they're, they're you know planning a sprint and it's all you know feature work and there's no security, then. But I like that idea of like a twenty or twenty five percent budget. One mm-hmm. in four of what we're doing is going to be a security related thing. And yeah. at the beginning when we haven't had a lot of testing and don't have a lot of security issues, you've got some bonus time. Mm-hmm. But if you've planned it in at the beginning, you know, eventually you're going to lose that bonus time to the responsible thing you need to do. Well, and if you plan at the beginning, you're not going to have as many security Theory, yeah, issues. Yeah, those numbers will never get that so. large. Hopefully. You would hope. Hopefully. But yeah, it, yeah. it is a setting expectations things. Mm-hmm. We we budget time to make sure the locks actually lock. And replace them when they don't. Yeah. And then you might, you might be okay. Might be. You still, I mean, we, I think we tend to focus on zero days and they're just not that common. They're not. It's, it's the non sexy things that are really most of the work. It's like, well, you've got 432 SQL injections and we need to fix those. (laughs) There's a reason why SQL injection is still at the top of the OWASP top 10. I mean, for, for a decade now. Yeah. I think more than that. More than that. Yeah. It's, that was, I think, one of the first, kind of vulnerabilities that became a big deal and it's still a problem because so if was, one yeah. in four features in your every given sprint was just hunting those down mm. i wonder how long before you'd actually get to the bottom of that list i mm. you know i think it is a never-ending job i don't think you're ever going to get to a place where your code is completely secure no. mm. but if we can take care of the really critical things then that makes me happy. People yeah. like me. It's like well, we are working hard to put you out of a job. Um, it's going to be a while. But <laughs> <laughs> you, you feel okay with that? You keep trying. I would love keep to put myself thing. out of a job. Well, and not what if we were at a place where it's only the latest exploits are the ones we have to concern ourselves with? I it, I have a hard time imagining that, yeah. but that would be lovely. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'd sleep a lot better. <laughs> It'd also be more interesting too. It I means it's got to be yeah. frustrating to talk about SQL injection. Again. Over and over. Um, and just the, yeah, but it's, it's because there's a knowledge gap. And I think that that's why I started the company that I did. Mm -hmm. I I want to share this knowledge. And even still, I like, it's, it's a hard sell. It's like, it's hard even to convince companies to spend money on pen testing, let alone education. Yeah. Um, because it's not required by compliance. No. So, although, yeah, I mean, yeah. 
going to a conference and take a few security sessions because often mm-hmm. going to a conference is considered a perk for the work. Like that, you're more likely to get that than to send them to a security course. Right. But then to say, hey, I'm going to send you this, but I want you to take a couple of those security sessions and report back and, and hope for the best, I guess. Yeah. And there's always something new to learn and mm-hmm. really smart people to learn from. So, um, yeah, conferences are great, too. It's one, one, one yeah. vehicle for it, certainly. Yeah. I wanted to mention hardware, too, because every once in a while you get a firmware exploit that can affect everything. Um, and it's not... You know, you're not the software programmer or the firmware, but, you know, you, to keep your company and everything secure, you have to be patching those things. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's something that I don't see people doing enough of. I At home, I have a, a router, you know, a LAN router, wireless router that automatically updates its own firmware. And occasionally, you know, your Internet will go down for a minute. You look in the logs. Oh, yeah, because there was a new firmware. But, you know, there's so many routers out there an IT professional's job is you would think making sure that everything is patched there was this one story I don't know if you heard about this um, uh, a Cisco wireless LAN controller vulnerability let hackers craft their own login credentials so it allows them to log into target devices through the management interface without using a valid password <laughs> And um, it got patched, you know, it, the patch is out there. But uh, if you didn't, if you weren't keeping up with that yeah. and it wasn't an automatically updating device. Well, and for a long time, a lot of those devices, that wasn't an option. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like you see it more commonly these days. It's yeah. like set it to auto update. There's a, some risk they'll push you a bad update, but there's much higher risk that you'll never get around to updating for a no. It's kind of like right. a vaccine, isn't it? Oh, did I say that out loud? Nice. <laughs> but this, uh, I do appreciate this idea of this degree, this, this sort of compromises of security. Mm-hmm. You're better off with auto update and the risk of a bad update than you yeah. are not getting updated. Yeah. yeah. There, there's a few exceptions to that rule, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked for a company where uptime was the most important thing. Yeah. So they had to test all the patches, and so there was a little bit of a delay there. Sure. But for things like, you know, user workstations, why not yeah. automatically Well, update? and also, I appreciate that management committed to that. Uptime mm-hmm. expensive, is critical, mm-hmm. and so we're going to spend the money to do the testing to get the updates out anyway. Just gonna, it's going to take a little longer. Well, that, I mean, to be honest, that took some convincing to get to that point. Sure. Because um, before it was just... Well, we can't update it. It'll break it. No, no. <laughs> so we have to it's, update it. It's broken already. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But well, uh, Jillian, thank you very much for talking to us. It's yes. been enlightening. Thank you. This has been a lot of fun. My very first podcast. Hey, congratulations! Oh, Glad it was us. <laughs> and if folks want to find you, what's the best place to reach out to you? Uh, goldhatsecurity.com or on Twitter. Okay. Um, my Twitter handle is Jillian's Two Cents. For now, until yep. the Muskerizer owns it, and then what? Um. Uh, you know, I don't plan on going anywhere, to be honest. I know yeah. a lot of people are leaving Twitter, but it actually looks like Elon Musk may not buy it. Yeah. Oh, really? So, it's yeah. Done deal. The, well, the deal might fall through. I don't know. So yeah. I'm, I'm going to hang on to Twitter for now, but definitely goldhatsecurity.com. Yeah. Okay, good. All right. Well, thanks again, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks.
Net Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a toy boy. Life is hard.